Welcome to Pound the Rock, the Scores NBA podcast. I'm Joe Wolfond, and I'm joined as always by my co-host, Joseph Cacharo. Talk to me, Cash. What's going on, man? It's one of my favorite episodes of the season. Yes, Actually, I don't indeed. know if that's true. I said that, and as I was saying it, I'm like, I don't know if that's true. I kind of like a lot, a lot of our episodes. I'm not saying it's yeah, not no, th- true that I don't love this one. <laughs> I just to say it's one of my favorites when there's a lot of ones I love. You know, I'm, very, I'm a big fan of our work, Wolfon. Wow, that's nice to hear. Uh, I, I mean, this is definitely a personal favorite. And so we're doing over and under achievers today. And this used to be an over under pod where we would bet win totals. We stopped doing that a couple of years ago, A, because neither of us really bet, but also because I just think it's like a more interesting intellectual exercise to do over and under achievers because it gets very anecdotal and we wind up spending a good chunk of the podcast just debating what the expectations for these teams actually are. And I think that actually becomes a fun part of it. So rather than looking at the win totals, which can come from a various number of sports books and are sort of nebulous in their own right, I make a point of not looking at the over-unders and just trying to have this very loose definition culled from a bunch of different places and people that I've heard talk about various teams to decide what I think the expectations actually are for basically all 30 teams in the league and then to decide which of those teams I think will over or underperform relative to those, again, highly anecdotal expectations. So I think we've each got two overs and two unders, right? That's what we've come here today yeah. with. Yeah. And uh, we'll get into those. I also, as I do for all of these types of episodes, went back to revisit our episode from last year just to see how we did. Before we do that, I just, I mean, do you have anything that you want to say on the ongoing Harden saga? I know I basically like made you promise not to talk about this anymore, but in terms of the leverage through chaos thing, it just feels to me after all of this, like Maury still holds most of the cards here, especially because of this, this CBA stipulation, which I will fully cop to not knowing existed until it was reported, you know, a a few weeks ago when it seemed like a possibility that Harden wasn't going to get traded before the season and then was going to hold out. But apparently the Sixers can void his free agency if he fails to report within 30 days of the season starting. So knowing that and feeling as I do, like, You know, the Sixers aren't going to be bad without him. Like, they may not be great. They won't be elite. But, like, they'll be a fine team. So that leads me to believe that ultimately Harden's going to get desperate before the team does, probably. Funny enough, because I know you didn't want to talk about the James Harden stuff. I actually think the most interesting news story from this week unrelated to any players or trade chat or anything is what happened with Terry Stotts in Milwaukee you see this I did yeah and I just don't want to get into speculating about what happened or why it happened because I read the story about the incident that happened at practice and it just seemed so innocuous to me in terms of like it just doesn't seem like an incident like that would cause an esteemed coach to walk away from a pretty prominent position with a title contending team on the eve of the season starting. Like maybe that was part of a broader trend of things happening, but for that to be the one inciting incident that was referenced as like a reason that he might've walked away just didn't hold water for me. You know, like I'm not saying that's, 
Yeah, no, I mean, I took it more as like, because I think it was uh, Jerry Wolfel also tweeted before Shams even wrote that article or published that article that uh, I think he was the, Jerry Wolfel was the first one that I saw tweet that he was hearing that the reason Stotts was walking away is because of like, uh, he was walking away because like him and and Adrian Griffin didn't see eye to eye. So the way I took it then when the Shams article came out was that maybe that was just kind of like the last straw. It, it wasn't like the reason, but it was like they weren't seeing eye to eye. Then that happened. Maybe they realized the working relationship just wasn't uh, wasn't there. But in general, I think it is an interesting dynamic and just it a tough spot maybe for both guys to be in. Because if you're Adrian Griffin, like first year head coach, you've been on the sidelines as an assistant. You kind of know how the game goes. You want accomplished coaches around you, some of whom may have been head coaches before, but you also want them and the players and the room at large to know, like, look, you know, the buck stops with you. You are the head coach and I'm pun intended. You, yeah. Good point. Um, but at the same time, you know, there's gotta feel, and not just for Adrian Griffin, just in general for new head coaches who have former head coaches on their staff, there's going to be a little bit of not so much looking over their shoulders, but wanting to make sure everyone knows who's in charge. And I think it probably didn't help matters, or in some cases it did, but in, in Adrian Griffin's case, it probably didn't help matters because when they traded for Dame, Stotts was already on the staff now, and so much was made about, including by Dame himself at his introductory presser, how much he was happy and how much comfort and familiarity there was for him with Terry Stotts being on that staff and how it was actually going to make his transition easier. He talked about it, I think, on uh, media day. He talked about it the first few days of training camp, how having Terry Stotts there, having Stotts explain things to him or Stotts having Dame explain things to others about his offense because Stotts was like going to be the de facto offensive coordinator. That probably also didn't help matters when we're talking about that dynamic, right? And how fragile it can be because you are this new head coach. that's already probably like any new head coach wanting to make sure these accomplished head coaches also know where they stand. But then Dame comes in and now he's got this relationship with Stotts and everyone knows it. And, you know, Dame and Stotts are almost working together to teach the other guys about the offense. And then you reportedly have this incident where you want this coaches meeting and Stotts is with Dame and Giannis instead. Like, yeah, not, not even speculating what was going through their heads, but just I, I did think it was actually a pretty interesting story and just a fascinating thing to think about, like this dynamic that coaches have to uh, figure out because, you know, we talk about player chemistry all the time and I'm not saying coaching chemistry or like Terry Stotts leaving is going to necessarily impact this season, but coaching chemistry is something too, right? That go like, that happens. We, we've heard in the past before about, was it Mark Jackson that was like just so paranoid, paranoid about yeah. his assistant coaches maybe getting too much power. We see it all the time around the league with teams being very against their assistant coaches talking to the media at all because they're like yeah. so worried about things. It's uh, it's just an interesting dynamic and I, I thought it made for an interesting story, although an unfortunate one, obviously, because like you said, you know, Stotts seemingly was in a great spot. Yeah, I mean, I think even apart from just this specific incident, there is a ton of insecurity and jealousy and pettiness among coaching staffs around the league. Like that's, yep. th those are stories that have been reported and some that I think you and I have heard about that haven't been reported, but like that, that happens like, yeah. and it's understandable, right? There's 30 of these jobs. They're very hard to get and especially hard to hold on to. Guys are always looking over their shoulder and it can cause some friction. I'm not saying that's what happened here. I'm not saying it's not, but that is the truth. 
of what it is like to be on an NBA coaching staff. So I don't know, maybe more details will trickle out. We'll find out what actually went on here, but it just seemed to me at first blush, like if that incident was really, I don't know, maybe it was the last straw, but it, it just didn't seem like enough to push Terry Stotts in a situation as, you know, if you're not going to be a head coach, there's not many positions you would rather have on a coaching staff than like a lead assistant on a championship vendor or favorite. The nope. offensive coordinator on a team with Giannis Antetokounmpo and Damian Lillard. Yeah. Is that job open? <laughs> I don't know. I mean, maybe they'll fill it internally. Uh, um, maybe they give one of us a chance. Well, yeah. Dame Giannis pick and roll 80 times a game. There we go. Sounds Hire like, you're a, sounds like you, uh, your time as an assistant coach is going to be short because you'll be promoted to head coach within a year. <laughs> uh, no, my last take on this is that uh, I really hope deep down that this is all part of some grand Damian Lillard conspiracy to go in there and blow things up from the inside. In oh, like, yeah. When, when Terry Stotts gets hired yeah. by the Heat, we'll know. Yeah, exactly. We'll know for sure. Dame went in and said, yo, yeah? You think I'm happy to be here when I wanted to be in Miami and I ended up in Milwaukee? Okay, I'll, I'll play nice, make it seem yeah. like everything's all right. Behind the scenes, I'm going to just absolutely destroy this thing. And it's going to start. By me convincing Terry Stotts to walk away. That'll show you. Take notes, James Harden. Yeah. This is how it's done. Uh, all right. Let's let's get to the the meat of this episode here. Over and underachievers. I said that I had gone back to revisit our episode from last year. And here's how we did, Cash. Uh, so we actually did three each mm-hmm. last year, where this year we're going to do two for the sake of expediency. It's a new year, man, where we got some resolutions. Yeah. We're going to be pithy. We're going to be concise. Okay, so we had one overlap, which is that we both had the Pelicans as an overachiever. And obviously that is going to be a whiff, but I think it's a justifiable whiff because when the team was healthy, they were the number one seed in the West. Like it was a justifiable whiff in that sense, but you could also say it's not, it's unjustifiable in that we Because you have to bake in the injury concerns, obviously, to your expectations for sure. It was a dangerous one to pick for that very reason, but I think it was, I feel vindicated in a certain sense in that the team was really good in all the ways that I thought it would be when Zion was healthy and then Zion was not healthy and it all fell apart. So yeah, we'll call that a whiff. Uh, Then your other overachievers you had cash was uh, you had the Sixers, which I don't really know what to do with that one because no, that's a, that's a flop. That's well, look. I was I was willing to call it a push for you because they won 54 games, which actually would have given them the number one seed in the West. They were up 3-2 on the Celtics in the second round and beat one MVP, but ultimately they lost in the second round, so I don't think you can count that as overachievement. I don't know. I, I guess I was just willing to say... Right. So I'm 0-1-1 yeah, so far. Your other overachiever cash was the Blazers. Sorry to say... Oh, Jesus. You know, that was looking real good in like... Was it early like January? Yeah. No, it was like early January when Dame came back. They had, or maybe it was early December. Remember then they they also won a bunch of games when Dame was out later, and they had a they were over five hundred at one point and like still in December. It's not like they crashed and burned right away. Anyway, yeah, it's a whiff. Oh, two and one. This is awful. I don't even want to. Let's. Do we even have to record the rest of this episode? Well, we're gonna get to your unders. So, uh, oh, sorry. Yeah, we actually we had two overlaps. My bad. We had we both had the Mavs as an underachiever. So. Okay. Put that one on the board. 
you also had the heat, interestingly enough, uh, you know, heat culture warrior that you are. You didn't believe in it last year. And tough one, man, because it was looking great for the regular season and halfway through the play-in round, basically. It was on point. Yeah, because they, they were coming off a number one seed and game seven East final. And I thought they were going to be mediocre and end up in the play-in. And they did. Yes. And and they almost lost a second straight playing game at home. And instead, but they made the was, finals. Yeah. Then instead, the I was sitting in Denver two months later writing about how heat culture is real. Yeah. So uh afraid I'm going to have to give you an L on that one, Cash, uh, as much as it made sense and as much as, honestly, it played to the script that you laid out until two weird, glorious months in the spring. Uh, and then your last under was the Bulls, which is just dead on, absolutely nailed it. Uh, so that leaves you basically at two, three, and one, I think. Yeah. And then uh, for me, I, I had that Pelicans over, which was a whiff. I had the Kings over, which... Huge. That was your win of the season last year. Yeah. Uh, and then uh, this is another one that looks hilarious in retrospect. But similar to the Pelicans one, I'm going to say in terms of the the process behind the pick... It's not as bad as it seems because I had the Nets as an overachiever. And again, when KD was healthy and when him and Kyrie were both playing, they looked really good. But as with the Pelicans, not on the injury front necessarily, although a KD injury did precipitate like a 10-game losing streak that sent everything down the tubes. But especially just with the internal dysfunction that anyone could have seen coming and I decided to ignore. Uh, yeah, that turned out to be an L. Uh, and then my underachievers were the Mavs, as I said, the Grizzlies, which I don't entirely know what to do with that one because they, they lost they won 51 games. They had the best net rating in the West. And the things that I thought would kind of lead to them underachieving weren't really what led to them underachieving, yeah. aside from the fact that I thought that they had unnecessarily thinned out their bench, which had sneakily been a big part of their success. And like, I do think... That had an impact last year. Yeah. But more than that, it was John Morant having, you know, several incidents in which he was waving a firearm yeah. around in public and I mean everything else that we don't need to revisit now. Yeah. Not not the shot selection to. issues with Ja that I thought would curtail the Grizzlies season. Oh man. We're we gotta nip this in the bud now, man. No <laughs> No more gun puns on the pod. But yeah, like So I I was kind of willing to call that one a push as well, just because I do think ultimately they underachieved. Like they got bounced in the first round after, you know, making to the second round the year prior and winning 56 games, pushing the Warriors. But they were still really good before things went off the rails for reasons that I couldn't have seen coming. So I don't don't think it's fair for me to take a a win on that one. Um, But then my third under was the Raptors, which I think was pretty spot on as well. So for me, that that's three, two, and one uh, versus two, three, and one for you. A pretty narrow decision that basically nets out to us, you know, batting five hundred on these picks. Which I don't know if that's good or bad. Like, well, it'd be just, great if we we're playing baseball. Yeah, but I, I think with the difficulty of just projecting how these things are going to go, especially uh, on the injury front, I don't know. I, I feel I feel okay. Yeah, about our five hundred batting average here. So. Uh, let's get into this year's picks with the understanding that probably half of these are going to be wrong. You want me to get us started here? Get us started. Phoenix Suns will be underachievers. 
So again, I have to ask because this is all semantics here, but what, what are the expectations for the Suns in your mind that you think they're going to fall short of? Well, I think the expectation, like you talked about kind of canvas in your own research and kind of like just perception of how things are almost canvassing the league in a way um, and, and coming up with each team's expectations. I think it's very obvious that the expectations for the Suns are to compete for a championship i'm not like listen their expectations are to win the championships we, we yeah. can't we can't for the top four contenders like milwaukee phoenix denver and uh and boston, boston. i'm not gonna say it's like an underachievement just because they don't win so like okay. you know i don't know about you i'll let you speak for yourself but the other three teams in that group i'm not touching i think they will meet expectations at least in the in the sense that they will be competing for a title late in the year I don't think Phoenix will. I think Phoenix is going to fall wow. short of the conference finals. And I wow. think that has to be considered an underachievement for them. If they if they make the West final and lose a competitive series to Denver or I guess anyone else, I think that's fine. Short of that, I think it's an underachievement. And I think that's what's going to happen is they're going to underachieve. Listen, I've been saying from the moment they got Beal, the amount of offensive talent and upside here is undeniable. I do think Beal helps them a little bit with the rim pressure that uh, was one of their major issues last season. But I just still think that this team is not going to be good enough defensively. I don't think they're deep enough with, as we spoke about a couple of weeks ago, like genuine playoff caliber rotation talent. You had a great term. You called them fake deep, where it's like they've got a bunch of guys that are like, yeah, they're NBA rotation caliber players, and you can mix and match them throughout the regular season and kind of convince yourself that they're deep. But they're really not when we talk about like playoff rotation guys. And so... I don't think they're good enough defensively. I don't think they're deep enough. And that's before getting into the fact that Kevin Durant, for as great as he still is, has missed like pretty significant chunks of time in every season since he's come back from blowing his Achilles out. And they've been knee issues now. And Booker and Beal aren't exactly the most durable guys. I just think given... Yeah. Nor is Nurkic, for that matter. Right, and that's what I was going to get to next. Given how fragile this thing already is because of the lack of depth in defense to then have those top three players that give you the undeniable talent advantage also be you know sorry to say but kind of fragile in their own ways when it comes to durability for their own reasons is really concerning and then you get to the Nurkic part which is as we discussed when we talked about the trade we don't have to like relitigate that but we both understood the when we're talking about like defensive upside and ceiling, sure, going from Aiton to Nurkic, you get it. But if you really take into account where each player is in their careers, the durability issues, all that, the gap defensively between Nurkic and Aiton is not as wide anymore as Suns fans want to believe it is. And on the offensive end, like we talk about getting to the rim being an issue, like getting easy shots being an issue for this team, despite how great of shot creators and shot makers they have. Well, Aiton, for as frustrating as he could be, is shying away from contact, turning really easy looks into tougher ones than they needed to be. He was still, statistically, an elite finisher inside. Nurkic was in the 32nd percentile in at-rim efficiency among big men last year. Like, that part of it, you know, yes, he'll help with the short role play. Easy to finish efficiently when you don't shoot at the rim unless there's literally nobody in your path. And sometimes even then... Out. Again, I'm I'm agreeing. You know how frustrated I am with Aiton. I'm just saying, offensively, I don't really like Nurkic doesn't help there. Other than yes, the short role playmaking is big, but in terms of the rat rim stuff, I, I still think it's an issue. Defensively, I think it's going to be a big issue, and it's really concerning that they're counting on Nurkic 
as much as they are now defensively. The depth is an issue. Their top three guys alone, the durability is like you add it all up. And given the fact that there are three other teams in that same tier, all three of which I would say I think are probably better than them anyway. Now you're starting to get to a point where you're like, man, they almost need everything to break right to even get to the conference finals, maybe. And I just think over the course of a long season, like things aren't going to break right. And if one or two things breaks wrong for this team, they're falling short of expectations. And I'm betting on that. Yeah, I think the rationale is very sound. Like I totally understand taking the under on, you know, the the Suns expectations is like the smarter play for sure, because there are more ways I think that it could go wrong than ways that it could go right. And that that's the reason, like when we talked about this uh, a couple episodes back, I basically had them in their own tier after like that first group of contenders in Denver, Boston, Milwaukee, just because I, I still thought they deserved to be above the rest of the fray, but not quite on that level because they had more question marks. I, I just, the reason I wouldn't pick them is I do think, and again, it's a big if, but if somehow they can get to the playoffs at something resembling full strength. I mean, I just can't really see any team other than Denver beating them in the West. And I think if they make it to the conference finals, that should count as a success. I mean, if they get their doors blown off by Denver, then yeah, maybe that's a disappointment, but I don't think they would. Like, I honestly think if they're fully healthy, man, I I could see them winning the West. I could see them winning the championship. I think that's very much on the table. The, the oh, it's definitely of- on the table. Yeah, they, it's so much offensive firepower, man. Like, it's crazy how good their offense can be just having all three of those guys healthy at the same time. Yeah. If they actually do get their doors blown off again in an elimination game for the third consecutive year, we're going We're going to have to bring out the fraud alert siren. For who? Book. I don't know, man. That This dude had... Maybe the single craziest shooting stretch I've ever seen in the playoffs last year. I love I Devin Booker. Can, yeah. I love Devin Booker. I think he's he's a great player. He's been on the court for back-to-back seasons. His team just getting absolutely eviscerated in an elimination. I know there were injuries last season. Him and Durant both played in that game. Devin Booker and Kevin Durant both on the floor at home in an elimination game should not be getting embarrassed like that. I mean, he's the year also after they're... basically the only reason that that series went to six games, though. Like, I don't, you can't put that on him. Oh, I, I didn't put it all on him. I said if they get, because you mentioned getting to the conference finals and at least be meeting expectations, unless they get their doors blown off. All I said was that if they get their, if they do get their doors blown off in an elimination game or to bow out of the place for a third straight year, especially if it's at home for a third straight year, at that point. I don't buy it. That's insane. Like, if it if it goes down the way it went down last year, which would be to say, okay, so by the end of the series, that would mean, like, Beal and Nurkic are both not playing. Because that's what happened at the end of that series against Denver is Chris Paul and Aiton were both out. And then it's basically just a two-person team, and they get blown out by, like, maybe the most complete team in the league. I'm, I'm sorry. I'm not putting that on Devin Booker, who's, like, proven himself to be an absolutely stone-cold playoff performer? Nah. I think you'll have to wear it, man. 
I mean, maybe he'll have to wear it, but that's different than breaking out fraud alert. Well, we'll like, see. Come on, man. We'll see this seven like, months. From, we'll see seven months from now what happens. We can't live. I mean, maybe this is the universe you want to live in, which is your prerogative, I guess. But I don't want to live in a universe where all but like five guys in the NBA are frauds. No, it's also role dependent and what your role is on, on a specific team. And Devin Booker's role for the Suns last year was I don't to want to, I don't want to live in a universe where a guy night. gets I don't want to live in a universe where a guy gets off easy if it's the, that's, but the problem is here we're talking about something that may or may not happen. I'm no, saying but I don't but I don't want to live in a universe considering this a possibility is yes. really deeply upsetting to me. I don't want to live in a universe where a guy as good as Devin Booker is seeing his team eliminated in embarrassing fashion 3 years in a row is just okay. All right, so Devin Booker led the playoffs in scoring last year, 33.7 points per game, 61% from two-point range, 51% from three, 87% from the free throw line for a true shooting percentage of 69%. Yeah, he's an insanely good NBA player. This is the guy who you're putting on fraud watch. Well, no, I also said let it's seven months from now. That you've lost the plot, man. I'm sorry. We got to move on from this before, before we get too testy here. But I can't. No, I I can't countenance this insanity. Uh, okay. So apart from that, I I am basically on board for all the reasons that you have picked the Suns to potentially underachieve. Because again, there are a lot of different ways that it could go sideways for them. Uh, I just think, man, the the upside is still so high and. I don't know. I'm I'm kind of hoping that we get to see this team roll into the playoffs at something close to full strength because I think that could produce an epic, epic Western Conference playoff series. You know, whether it's in the conference finals or not, but a rematch against Denver would be all kinds of fun. My first over, and again, this is very anecdotal because I think a lot of the Vegas lines have them in like the mid 40s and wins, but basically all I've heard is people trying to pump the brakes on the OKC Thunder hype train. And I don't want to do that, man. I don't want to pump the brakes. I think it's full speed ahead, man. I think this team is ready to make a pretty sizable leap. And I just come back to the fact that... So yeah, they really surprised everybody with what turned out to be a 40-win season last year. Won a play-in game and then lost the next one pretty decisively to Minnesota. Uh, And I think that basically counted as a huge smashing success for a team that nobody really expected to do much of anything last year. And it's like a lot of times you look at it and be like, man, some fluky things went their way. They were uncommonly healthy or they had really good crunch time luck. You could point to a lot of different things maybe to be like, it's not repeatable or you know they're not going to take this big step forward that it seems like they might just based on what they did as this young out of nowhere team last season. I just don't really feel that way about the Thunder and you know part of it is like they had the point differential of a 44 win team. So it's not like they were really playing over their heads in that sense. They weren't unsustainably good in close games or anything like that. They didn't have especially good jump shooting luck on either side of the ball. I think the one thing you could maybe say is there was some smoke and mirrors to what they were able to accomplish defensively without anything resembling a rim protector, but now they have Chet. So I think at the very least, they should be able to sustain what was a league average defense last year on top of now having a big man who can space the floor, 
and give the Thunder a legitimate role threat, which is another thing they lacked last season when they were very dependent and basically built their whole offense around guard-guard screening actions. And that's not a bad thing. Like Those actions were super effective, and they, that can still be a big part of their playbook. It just doesn't have to be all of it. Like They can have more you know, conventional pick-and-roll combinations. And so what, what, what do you think about this? Is, is this passing muster for you or not? Nah? I get what you're saying. You know how much I love this team and their upside. I think I made videos about them being like the NBA sleeping giant two years in a row. People are probably getting sick of how high on the thunder I've been. The reason I can't get there as an overachiever this year is because, as you mentioned, the hype had grown so loud that, okay, now you're having people saying pump the brakes. But in general, the hype had started to grow so loud. Shea makes all NBA first team last year. They have Chet coming in. They're supposed to build on winning a play-in game, so they should be a playoff team. So it's hard for me to say I think they'll be an overachiever because then I start to think, well, then what is overachieving to this team given how loud the hype has got? Is it winning a playoff series? Is it like, I know you've mentioned maybe them competing for home court in like a top four seed. Yeah. I just, I can't get there yet just because we've talked off air so much about how loaded the West is again this year. To th- come up with like 10, 11 teams in the West that I think the Thunder will outlast over the course of 82 games is still really tough for me given where they are in in their development, in their, you know, how young they are. It's just hard for me to get that high on them yet. As much as I believe in them long-term, potentially this season, it's hard for me to like be that confident in them being that good that quickly. Okay, so I will explain kind of where I landed on this in terms of it feeling like overachievement to me. And it's going to spoil probably another one of my picks here. And it's also going to spoil one of my bold predictions for next episode. But I have three Northwest Division teams finishing in the top five in the West. One of them being the Thunder. And I think just getting into the top six and avoiding the play-in to me would feel like overachievement. Given what you mentioned about the West being pretty loaded this year. I think your belief in the Minnesota Timberwolves is more outrageous than me saying Devin Booker <laughs> gets a fraud alert if they go outside three years in a row. We're going to get there. We're going to get there. But to just finish making the point for the Thunder, I mean, I don't need to make the point for Shea, right? Like anybody yeah. who's watched him knows he's an absolute superstar, like you mentioned. All-NBA first-teamer, top-five MVP finisher, master manipulator, totally unguardable, right? Like not a lot of guys you would rather have stirring the drink than him. But man, I think Jalen Williams is like right now ready to be a high-end secondary creator. And honestly, with Giddy, as much as I do, like I understand why the shooting limitations can be a bit of an issue because you need the ball in Shea's hands a lot. And then you wonder, okay, what does that mean for Giddy off ball given that he's, you know, doesn't have a ton of gravity. I'm just weirdly not that worried about it because he's such a good and quick decision maker and such a talented passer and driver. I don't worry so much about their offense stalling out if the ball swings to him and the defense is laying back because he moves quick. He sees these small passing windows that most guys don't see. So if he gets the ball with an advantage, I feel pretty confident that he won't let that advantage disappear. Like he'll find a way to sustain it or extend it and do something productive with it. And so I don't, yeah, the off-ball stuff with him doesn't worry me that much. And then obviously on-ball, there's a lot of things he can do as a playmaker. 
uh, whether it's out of the post or whether it's honestly just like initiating, creating for himself or others as like a driver and an inside out passer. I just, it, it's a lot of young talent. And I, I love the way that the Thunder play. I think they're very well coached. And I, I'm obviously understanding that I, I could be very wrong about this. It's a bit of a swing. And, and it's very likely that they're not ready yet, that the young talent won't amount to a big leap this year. Uh, maybe they won't catch teams flat-footed and won't be able to get by on like sheer effort and relentlessness the way they did last year. But I, I, I don't know. For whatever reason, I feel confident that somehow they're going to finish top five in the West. Look, I'd like to see it. I'll say that. I think it would be a great story. Yeah, uh, I think so too. So maybe it's a bit of wishful thinking on my part, but hey, uh, we've, we've done more indefensible things than make picks based on what we want to see happen on this podcast, like put Devin Booker on fraud watch. Hey, uh, I'll just say this. Cause I, we don't want to talk about I, him being excellent and then having a couple stinkers and his team going outside in elimination games is not all that different from James Harden's early postseason career. And no one's defending him now saying, yeah, but the first five games of that series were the only reason his team was even in it for him to go outside in the end. That's all I'll say. Well, but like, I don't know. I mean, let's, let's talk about this seven obviously- months from now. I hope we don't have to talk about it because I love Devin. I think Devin Booker's a great player. Okay. Uh, All right. Hit me with another uh, over or underachiever cash. So I started with an under, so I'm going to go over now. I'm going to go with the Memphis Grizzlies. Cool. And the reason I'm going with them, and maybe people will be like, well, how, you know, how good do you think they'll be given that they were a 57 win two seed last year? Like, yeah, they lost the first round, but what's overachieving for them? Well, What I'd say is that, for the most part, if you take any contending level team and you guarantee that their franchise level superstar is going to miss at least 25 games, for most teams, maybe not quite a death knell, because if you're a top tier contender, you're probably pretty stacked, but that is a significant roadblock in your path to try to get to championship contention that season. And I'm saying the Grizzlies won't really suffer that much in those 25 games without John Morant and will be well positioned to do damage when Jaw comes back, assuming Jaw is focused, you know, avoids further league punishment and issues off the court. I know losing Tyus Jones and Dylan Brooks hurts. I've talked about how he'd gotten to the point where I thought Dylan Brooks had become undervalued in Memphis. Tyus Jones has been consistently one of the best reserve guards in the league. Marcus Smart can't do every single thing both those guys do, especially in the in the case of Jones. Like Marcus Smart isn't the shooter that Tyus Jones is. But in terms of finding a guy who can like take a little bit of what Tyus Jones and, and Dylan Brooks do and put him in one player, Marcus Smart's a pretty good option. Because as you've mentioned before, he's a he's an underrated offensive player as a playmaker and as like an, a, a guy who keeps an offense flowing. Yep. Defensively, he can basically replace almost anyone like he is for a guard for a guy his size as close to being a defense unto himself as is possible at his size the havoc he causes on the perimeter the one-on-one work he can do on the perimeter and against guys bigger than him on the wings his ability to be a non-traditional helper and anchor of a defense despite his size like he's going to help them get over the losses of Jones and Brooks in ways not a lot of other single players, especially at his size, can do. I think this team is deeper than a lot of people give him credit for. I think 
Desmond Bain and Jaron Jackson as a combo offensively and defensively when it comes to Jackson as well is pretty damn good in terms of having two guys who can help keep you afloat while your best player is out for a third of the season. Desmond Bain, I don't want to go too far into him because I've got some bold predictions related to Desmond Bain and his statistical production, especially when Ja is out. Mm. I just am a big believer in him, especially offensively. Taylor Jenkins, you know, since he's been the head coach there, has proven that he pretty much always maximizes the talent at his disposal. And at least in the regular season, has his team outperforming expectations every year. Even as the Grizzlies have gotten good and gotten to a point where we accept them as very good, they still somehow find a way to overachieve, at least in the regular season, almost every year. So, and then that's, you know, I haven't even mentioned the fact that Without Jaw in the lineup the last two seasons. 31 and 15. 31 and 15. And you could say, well, a lot of that was two years ago when they were really good. Last year, they were only one game over 500 without in the lineup. Guess what? Having a winning record at all without your best player in the lineup over a long period of time in the NBA is pretty damn good. And if they do that again, if they come out of the 25-game stretch, even 13 and 12 in the very tough Western Conference, and then they play like the 55 to 60 win team they've been, the last couple of years, when Ja gets back, they'll be in great position, and they're going to be as dangerous as pretty much anyone outside of the Nuggets Suns tier in the West. So for all of those reasons, I'm going to say the Grizzlies overachieve based on what people would expect from a Grizzlies team without Ja for 25 games. They find their way into wherever in that top six it ends up. I still think they have a chance to you know finish as high as three maybe, but they'll be in the top six. I don't think they'll have to go through the plan, and I still see them winning around. I mean, I, I think that's all reasonable. Like, I definitely have them finishing in the top six. I don't know. I, I didn't know if that counted as overachievement because I feel like they have a well-established track record of being very successful in the regular season, successful without jaw. You mentioned Bain and, like, what he's been able to do as almost like a lead creator there. He played a thousand over a 1,000 minutes, 1,023 minutes without Morant last season and averaged 25.5 points and 5.7 assists per 75 possessions with a 62% true shooting mark. So, yeah, I think he'll be able to pick up most of the slack with Jaw out. And I, I just think during that 25-game stretch, I would bet money on them having the best defense in the NBA. So those are all reasons to to kind of believe that they can overachieve. In terms of like the depth, that's where I sort of start to to worry because I just don't think they're as I again, I go back to last season when one of the reasons that I was lower on them than consensus I think coming into the year was that they they didn't have the same level of depth that they'd had in the past. They let Kyle Anderson go, they traded DeAnthony Melton, they were banking on a bunch of rookies and other unproven young guys. And some of that worked out like Santi Aldama had a really good year and you know even um John Conchar was like a, a pretty important part of their rotation but like it didn't work out really for like the rookies it, it didn't work out for Zaire Williams like like I think when you see them go from being 20 and 5 without Ja 2 years ago to being 11 and 10 without him last year that's a big part of the reason why and I think that's still kind of a concern for them I get that, but like Zaire Williams, you mentioned him. I think he was coming off a knee injury last year. He was derailed by a knee injury. I think he, I can't remember what the number was. He didn't play a lot. No, no, no. He he did. He was injured, but he also got off to a terrible start yes. before before that. But we are we are talking about a guy who, as a rookie, had emerged as an occasional starter 
for a very good Grizzlies team. I think it was, sorry, it was two years ago they won 57. Last year they won 51. But yeah, he had emerged as a, an occasional starter for a 57-win Grizzlies team a couple years ago. They've got a full season of Luke Kennard now after trading for him at the deadline, which should help juice the offense. I mean, the guys led the league in three-point percentage two years in a row. Aldama, yeah, who you... 54% on 5.7 three-point attempts per game after yeah. coming over at the deadline last year. Full was... season of that dude this year. Yeah. Aldama, who you mentioned, was a bit of a revelation last season as like an efficient reserve big. Um, if Zaire Williams looks better with health, uh, I think they're going to be fine depth-wise. I, I don't think they're the deepest team in the league, but I think they are surprisingly okay depth-wise. There's just certain things that worry me. Like Steven Adams, how important he is to their team and their identity, and the fact that he is coming off a season where he had a pretty significant knee injury, only played 42 games, somehow still only 30 years old, but like an old 30, I think we can both agree. And if you see him take a step back or just have another unhealthy season, I don't think it can be overstated how much that that changes things for this team. Like They've been 22nd in first shot half-court offense each of the last two years. And that has been salvaged in large part by Steven Adams' offensive rebounding. Just like far and away the best offensive rebounder in basketball. Also a huge boon to their defensive rebound rate. With him on the floor last year, they had a 56% rebound rate. I.e. they grabbed 56% of all available rebounds. Which to put that in context, the Rockets led the league last year at 53%. So the the Grizzlies were at 56% when Adams was on the floor last year. And when he was on the bench, that was down to 48.5%, which was on par with the Timberwolves who ranked 27th. So it's just like a huge, huge difference. And that's without even mentioning just how important his screen setting is to making the offense work, like clearing space and, and making life easier for the guards there. So with his, I don't know, health and effectiveness, I guess, kind of feeling up in the air. Brandon Clark probably going to miss most or all of this season recovering from the Achilles tear. The the front court depth feels very tenuous to me. Like they, they need a big season from Aldama basically, which feels like not the most comfortable place to be necessarily when, uh, when, you know, the other guys they have serving as front court depth, they're like, you know, David Roddy, Kenneth Lofton Jr., Jake LaRavia, like again, these kind of unproven young guys. So that's why that's why I wouldn't have pegged them as an overachiever. Uh, even if I can see how they get there, there's just a few too many ifs to make me feel confident in that. On top of like, I don't know, maybe it won't be a challenge because there's so much history and built-in chemistry between like him and Bane and Jaren that when Ja comes back, it's not going to be an issue to reintegrate him. But it's got to be a challenge to sort of like completely change the way that your team plays 25 games into the season. You know, I think that'll be difficult. So um, as much as, again, I have them finishing in that top six, I don't know if I, don't know if I can see them overachieving relative to, to expectations. Uh, why don't we take a break there and we'll come back. I think we've got three left, so we'll do the other half on the other side. What's up, Pound the Rock listeners? Just a friendly reminder to rate, review, and subscribe to the show on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. You can also check out the Scores Fantasy Football Podcast with Justin Boone. And in case you haven't already, download the Score app, available on iPhone and Android. That's where you can find all of our featured content, as well as live scores, updates, and breaking news. And don't forget to check out the Score's YouTube page for an informative, yet lighthearted dive into the sports world's trending topics. Now back to the show. Okay, Cash, uh, we are 
already derelict in our established duty to be more concise and pithy this year. But what can I tell you, man? I'm having fun, so we'll keep it rolling. I I guess it's my turn. And I'm sorry to say that this isn't going to be conducive to concision because I basically cheated and I had my next over as three teams who I've all sort of grouped in the same category, having written a piece about this, about these teams that made big win-now swings last season, that I don't think you could say they all fell flat on their faces because the Cavs had a really good regular season, but they obviously flamed out in the playoffs. And then the Hawks and Wolves, it just didn't really work for them at all. And so I think that has collectively just lowered the expectation past what is reasonable for these three teams. And... I could see all three of them basically blowing past those expectations this year in year two after making their big win now trades. What do you think? I see the path there for Cleveland. Okay. Especially if we're talking regular season. I think they have a chance in the regular season to break up the Milwaukee-Boston top two in the East. They're built to stack regular season wins. They have more continuity. They'll be really good. If them overachieving, though requires them to make a deep playoff run, I still don't really see it. When it comes to Minnesota, look, I understand why. I get why on paper, when you look at how the talent fits, why people are high on them. I understood it last year. I understand why, as we mentioned a couple weeks ago, Kevin Pelton's stats-based projections have them as one or two in the West. I understand all that. But there still has to be some element of like knowing who you're dealing with. And... Not to bring out the fraud alert, sign a siren again, but there is something with these Timberwolves, and it probably has to do with the Tin Man, known as their franchise. But I mean, it's fine because Anthony Edwards is going to be the guy for them in yeah. short order. But there's something with this team, and I don't want to put it all on Cat. A big part is on him, but I just can't. I've seen too much, and I can't believe in them to reach their potential, to win the big one, to show up when it matters most, when their backs are against the wall. And so it's like, depending on, again, depending on what we're saying their expectations are. If after last season, expectations for them are just, I don't know, getting back to the playoffs and like, but I know, I don't, is that, that's given their roster, that's not over exceeding. So you tell me what, what's over exceeding for the Timberwolves? Is it winning a round? Home court advantage. And yeah, I think winning around, I think that's got to be part of it. So I understand what I'm setting myself up for here, but you know, to your point about it's the Timberwolves, we know how this goes. I just think that Anthony Edwards kind of changes that equation. Fair. and, And I think importantly, contrary to last season, when he came into the season, not in the best of shape and took like two months to really get rolling, he looks like he's ready to hit the ground running this year. After a summer of playing for Team USA and seemingly putting in the work to like come in and be ready to explode from Jump Street, he looks so good. And I think that on its own is going to add like, you know, two or three wins to their ledger. Then you just add in like, okay, so first of all, you hope for better health from Cat because he played, I think, you know, 22 games last year. And just the increased familiarity, uh, you know, a year under their belts and all these guys feeling more comfortable playing together. I think for Edwards and Gobert especially, that's going to be important. 
But also, like, you have Conley there for the full season. I thought his arrival really changed things for them at both ends. Like, it made their, them stronger defensively, better offensive organization, way, way lower turnover rate. And, like, turnovers was a huge problem for them uh, before they made that trade. And I think also that helped Gobert sort of find his role in the offense. So having him from the beginning of the season, I think, is going to help. Then Kyle Anderson being established in the rotation and his role from the beginning, that, like, that didn't really happen until kind of a third of the way through the season. I just think there's a better sense of who they are. And then you throw in, you know, probably a jump forward from Edwards, possibly a leap forward from Jaden McDaniels, who I, you know, you know, I think is already one of the best defenders in the league and has a chance to be a pretty dynamic offensive player as well. There are some things they absolutely need to do better. Like they were one of the worst rebounding teams in the league last year. And that makes no sense given that they regularly had two seven footers and like a six foot nine small forward on the floor together. And they were again, 27th in rebound rate, as I mentioned before. So that has to get better. And you know, the fact that they couldn't even be a good offensive rebounding team with all that size, especially considering that they weren't even a good transition defense is particularly galling. And like all that stuff needs to improve. They fouled like crazy and having Gobert there, a huge part of getting him was to fix those specific problems. Rebound better, foul less, and it didn't make a difference. So you need to see improvement in those areas, but I think they're capable of it. I think they're going to be really good defensively. Uh, the offensive end is where they kind of have to figure things out, but I think Conley being there for the full year, Edwards being an absolute monster, some more familiarity with Gobert in the mix is going to help them get there. So I think I have them finishing third in the West. Like when I sort of did my cursory standings predictions i had them third and then yeah i guess if i'm saying they're overachieving they do have to win a playoff round so let's let's call it oh <laughs> you, you look sick to your stomach i i mean look it's it, it's not a particularly comfortable place to be putting my faith in the minnesota timberwolves but like i've said before i'm going down with the ship yeah you might be going down man. <laughs> <laughs> uh yeah i mean also i like i tend to think there's probably a cat trade somewhere on the horizon. Now we're talking. Maybe, maybe not this year, but like, and I don't know if that's going to be the thing that saves them. Like maybe that's the thing that ultimately is the nail in their coffin when uh, they have to trade him for like not a great return just because they're getting too expensive and it's not working and they can't get something back that actually nudges them into contention. And then it's just like, okay, what do we do all this for really? But if the right trade comes along and it allows them to balance their roster, like the one I remember we talked about this last season, the one I threw out there, this is when Mikhail Bridges was still on the Suns and hadn't emerged as the kind of, you know, pick and roll operator and pull up shooter that he looked like he was in Brooklyn. You know, I proposed a cat for Mikhail Bridges swap and uh, that, yeah, I think that ship has definitely sailed, but that's the type of move that really could have changed things for them in terms of just, again, roster balance, better spacing, more shot creation, even though, I mean, like Cat, Cat is providing basically most of the spacing on this team. So Greatest shooting big man of all time, man. He do, he's, I was just say he doubled down on it. He's like quadrupled down on it. Yeah. Uh, recently actually even added the Jay-Z line. Men lie, women lie numbers don't when talking about it. Um, okay. Anyway. Yeah. So I, look, I think, I don't know if that's going to happen this season, but I mean, it's contingent on him, I guess, actually playing well enough and staying on the floor long enough to have some real trade value around the league. But 
that is an option I think that will be available to them in terms of a way to reorient the direction of the team uh, and possibly improve it. So uh, yeah, that's that's where I'm at with the Wolves. You you laid it out with the Cavs. I just I, I think people are forgetting maybe how good they were in the regular season last year. Seventh in offense, first in defense, second in net rating. Mitchell was unbelievable. I mean, Garland in his age 22 season, I thought was just tremendous, uh, especially at the offensive end, but even defensively, like, you know, we thought pairing up Garland and Mitchell was going to really kneecap their defense, but they led the league in defensive rating in the regular season and playoffs, by the way. I know everyone has a, a bad taste in their mouths after they got stomped by the Knicks, but as much as rebounding was an issue in that series, they actually had a really, really strong defensive rating. It was just on offense where they got demolished, like they couldn't score. And I think the moves they made in the offseason are going to help with that. And hopefully some development from Evan Mobley is going to help with that as well. So yeah, to me, like over, I don't, you know, I wouldn't pick them to make the conference finals just because I think there's like that clear top two in the East. But I'm thinking, you know, 55 or more wins in the regular season and a competitive second round series against one of those two teams. Would you say that qualifies? I guess. Like, I, I think they're capable of that. I guess yeah. I'm not sure if that. Qu- <sighs> I don't know. I mean, now it's, we're talking semantics. I guess it depends how competitive that series against Milwaukee or Boston is. Because um, mm-hmm. if you just say maybe break into the top two in the regular season and then lose in the second round, I don't know. Is that really overachieving for a team that made the move they did last year and is coming off already a 50 plus win season? I don't know. It might be about in line with their expectations. But again, if they if they have a season like that, including the regular season, that I do think they're capable of from a wins perspective and have a very competitive series against one of these two teams in Milwaukee and Boston that I think are actually just head and shoulders above the rest in the East. All right, I'll give that to you. That I'll, I'll yeah. consider that an overachiever. I know. I mean, I, this was more slanted toward regular season, I would say, because I, I just think they're going to have a killer regular season. I agree with you there. I agree with you there. And uh, I told you before, like in advance of the Bucks and Celtics making those huge trades, I was toying with a Cavs finish with the number one seed in the East prediction. So I don't know that that's going to happen now because those other two teams loaded up, but I think they'll be right there with those two teams competing for the number one seed in the East. There might be a new uh, challenger in that mix because uh, while we're recording the, Ra- this, the just, Raptors signed Justice Winslow. Just got this alert that the Raptors signed Justice Winslow. So. Dude, it's move it, over, Milwaukee, a more Boston perfect Raptor Cleveland. than Justice Winslow. A playmaking forward who can really defend and can't shoot. I mean, yeah. How did it take this long? That's what I want to know. I mentioned the Hawks in there too, and we don't have to spend a ton of time on it. I'll just say, I think beyond Boston, Milwaukee, Cleveland, who I fully expect to be the top three seeds in the East, like that fourth seed is very much up for grabs. And I think I'm putting my money on the Hawks to grab it big reason i just think so look after quinn snyder took over last year they had the fourth best offensive rating in the league and that was despite that was while having the lowest or maybe second lowest three-point attempt rate uh their their shot profile was really ghastly under nate mcmillan and then it started to improve under snyder rim shots and corner threes under mcmillan accounted for 39 percent of their field goals and then under Snyder, that was up to 45.4%. So a pretty big jump. And there wasn't a big stylistic distinction after Snyder took over last year, but I think that's going to change this year. Even though I don't think that the Hawks offense is going to look very much like 
the jazz offenses that Snyder captained in the past, I think there is going to be more movement, hopefully more interaction between Murray and Young, you know, less ISO ball, like still definitely a lot of pick and roll because you have Trey Young. You want to use him in pick and roll a lot, but I just think there will be probably a bit better ball and player movement that will lead to better offensive process. And then, you know, defensively, I feel like is where the rubber is going to meet the road. And I kind of think, I don't know, man, between Murray, Capella, Akongwu, you know, Hunter to a lesser extent, Jalen Johnson. I, I feel like I've probably said this a couple times before and it hasn't come to fruition, but I do think they have the right pieces to insulate Trey defensively and be like average on that end, which if they are as good offensively as I think they can be, then that's maybe a team that's butting up against 50 wins. Dude, I've mentioned it a bunch of times over the last couple of years, but like they've had stretches and even seasons where their defensive numbers with Trey on the court have actually still been good enough yep. because of the infrastructure around them. Now, it hasn't always amounted to like overall defensive numbers over the course of the season or whatever, and I'm not saying that Trey contributes to good defense. We know he's one of, if not the worst, defensive guard in the league, but it's not some like unproven thing that there's no way they can get to. Like They've done it before because of the defensive infrastructure around him. If those guys can stay healthy, there is no reason why they can't do that over the course of an entire season. And, you know, the one thing you can say for Trey in terms of contributing to good defense is like, if the other team's having to pull the ball out of the basket over and over again, then you get to set your defense. It's just a little bit easier than if, you know, they're running off a misses time after time. So, yeah, their, their starting five last year was like really, really strong defensively. I know John Collins isn't there anymore, but I don't think they lose a ton defensively by, you know, whether it's putting Jalen Johnson at the four or sliding Hunter up to the four. I think they can be every bit as good as that starting five was defensively last year while probably being better offensively. So, yeah, that's why I think uh, I, I think the Hawks can overachieve. What do you got next? Let's go underachiever. Knicks. They won 47 games last year and won a playoff series. And so you combine that type of success, surprising success, with Knicks fans being Knicks fans. And I'm not even hating on them. It just is what it is. Like, they, you know, they're, we live they're in Toronto. Bunch. Yeah, we live in Toronto. There's, we've often made the comparison, as have others, that the Knicks and the Toronto Maple Leafs are very similar in terms of being considered the meccas for their respective sports, mm-hmm. who have these long championship droughts, have these just painfully devoted fans that get clowned for being so devoted and having so much belief. I'm not going to hate on that. Knicks fans, good on you for continuing to believe, but your team is going to underachieve this year if you think they're going to build on what happened last season because I think it's quite possible and ultimately likely that they will win less than 47 games, and I'm pretty damn confident they are not going to win a playoff round again if they even get to the playoffs proper because you look at this team and the roster – And the optimist can say, well, you talk about that 47-win team that beat Cleveland in the playoffs last year. They're bringing back their top eight playoff playoff rotation players, and they added Dante DiVincenzo. Why would they take a step back? Well, because they weren't actually as good as they performed last season. Both of us have often spoken about how Julius Randle, look, give him his flowers for the consistent regular season production, the durability the workload 
that he takes on over the course of the regular season. Like, I won't take any of that away from him. The guy's made All-NBA two of the last three seasons somehow, but we've talked so much about how much of his effectiveness, especially offensively, is tied to streaky jump shooting. And I just can't buy into that as a repeated thing year after year. In fact, we saw it drop off after his last All-NBA season because the way he plays and that process and that formula is not conducive to consistently efficient production. And if his efficient comes if if his efficiency comes down and his offensive effectiveness comes down, his like effort and his defensive work is just not consistent enough to withstand his offensive efficiency plummeting. You know I'm on record as saying I just don't think there's any path to contention here while both of Randall and RJ Barrett are employed by the same team. I just think that you can't have two guys that inefficient, as poor playmakers as they are. And they're not like Randall improved as a playmaker, but I still wouldn't say he's a great playmaker. He misses a lot of reads. Mm. Just the two of them together being as ball dominant and high usage as they are, yet being as underwhelming to bad efficiency wise as inconsistent defensively poor decision makers that don't always make the best reason you just can't have both those guys on the team and think you're going to contend and the next step for the Knicks if you were looking at like building after winning 47 games in a round would be like at least be fringe contenders I don't think they're actually going to get there Jalen Brunson I love he's at this point he's not just a proven star he's a proven postseason star usually having a guy like that at an average of $25.7 million over the next two years would give you such a leg up in building out a contender because you've got a genuine star on a bargain contract, which is really hard to have in the NBA. But to me, you negate that by having Randall and Barrett making you a combined $54 million over the next two years. Unless they trade one of those guys, and even if they do, I don't really know what the return package is. I don't see the path opening up for them this year. And then the last thing I'll say, Mentioned this when we were on the Raptors show with Will Lou earlier this week, but everyone talks about this Knicks trade capital, and I get it. They've got four extra first-rounders the next three years. I'm not poo-pooing on that as something that can get them a good player. It can get them a good player, maybe a good player or two, but all those picks are very well protected. Most of them are going to end up at best in the teens, if not late like fall later in the first round if not convert to second rounders these picks are not as good as people think they are just because they hear there's four extra picks they're not going to be that good and if the type of player capable of bringing this Knicks team to the promised land becomes available in a trade I just have a very hard time believing it's this Knicks asset capital that'll get the deal done because it's not as good as people think it is so you Add all that together, and I don't see how this team does better than 47 wins and winning a first-round series, which, expectations-wise, is what they think they're capable of. Yeah, so the reason I just don't really know what to do with the Knicks is, like, everything felt upside down for them last year, where they somehow finished third in the league in offensive efficiency and 19th on defense, and I just felt like watching them understanding like the pieces on the team and how those pieces interacted. It really felt like that should have been flip-flopped. And that's basically exactly what we saw in the playoffs where their defense was really strong and they had a very hard time scoring, even against Cleveland who they tramped. They were able to get by a with their defense B with their offensive rebounding, which was a huge part of how they finished 
third in overall offense last year. And then, you know, they play against the Heat. And again, it's just like they can't score enough. They didn't have as much success on the glass. Things kind of dried up. It was really just down to Brunson, right? Like he was keeping them in that series. And beyond him, they weren't getting a whole ton. And despite playing some pretty good defense themselves in that series, it wasn't enough because they couldn't score. So that's why I I don't know what to do with them because I'm like, they should be better defensively. They should be worse offensively. And maybe that just nets out to them being about as good overall. I guess where I come down on that is I could see them winning 47 games again. I don't really see them being better than that, though. And if I had to guess, if they are like the exact same team, defense improves, the offense regresses, and they meet somewhere in the middle, I would probably bet against them winning a playoff series again. They just... I mean, credit to them. They played very well in that series. They imposed their physicality. Feels like they ran into a team that just wasn't ready and looked like a deer in headlights. And I don't know if they get that kind of matchup again. In which case, yeah, I I can see things. You know, if they're like plateauing in the regular season and essentially taking a step back by not advancing in the playoffs, then that does feel like underachieving to me. Um, Man, this this next pick for me is really going to hurt my soul. And uh, it's the inverse of what you called my biggest win of last season. But I'm a little bit worried about the Sacramento Kings. You don't think they can stay completely healthy for the entire year again? Look, that's a big part of it. You know, uh, the health definitely played a part in powering their success last year, uh, especially as compared to some of the other teams in the West that very much did not stay healthy. But even apart from that, I just... And maybe this is going to feel like it runs a little bit counter to what I said about the Thunder. But I think the difference is like the Thunder actually are adding a significant piece that has the potential to completely change the way they play. Whereas with the Kings, they're in a position that always makes me a little bit nervous where when a team sort of catches the league by surprise, but then after that sort of tries to run it back with the same basic roster and the same formula without addressing clear problem areas. And in this case, for the Kings, I think it's like lack of secondary rim protection, lack of defense on the wing. I just start to get worried about diminishing returns. And I wonder with the Kings specifically, if they can be as successful with their offensive formula as they were last year. I think they're still going to be a really strong offense, but I don't know, maybe teams are just a little bit more prepared to deal with their insane pace and all their dribble handoffs and split actions and things like that that allowed them to have so much success last year. And maybe De'Aaron Fox can't quite have the mid-range shooting season he had last year, or his clutch season, for that matter, when he was just absolutely out of his mind. And if that doesn't happen, then, yeah, I mean, we're talking about lopping a few wins off of their total. And in a West that I expect to be better this year than last, I I am officially worried about where that leaves them. Like, I definitely expect them to be at least, you know, fighting for a a play-in spot, like being in that sort of, you know, 7 to 10 range. But I think think probably they're a play-in team and very likely outside of the playoffs proper when all is said and done, which hurts me to say because I absolutely adore this team. And you know, I was on them, you know, from the beginning of last season. I I was driving that Kings bandwagon, but... I just, I don't know if I can get there this year. I mean, I'll hop right back on board if it seems like 
they're going to prove me wrong here, but I just have a weird feeling that they're due for some regression. I think they're due for some regression, especially on the health front. Like it's almost impossible to have the injury luck they had two years in a row. And if Kings fans, you know, as they understandably probably do feel, well, now, you know, after last year, now the next step that they're ready to take is to win a playoff series and become actual like fringe contenders. If we're talking from that perspective, I'd say, no, no, they'll underachieve there. Like that's not happening. But in terms of somewhat repeating what they did in the regular season last year and just avoiding being a playing team, considering I was the doubter and the skeptic last season, I could actually see it just because that Fox Sabonis two-man game and everything the Kings do with everything kind of revolving around Sabonis and his playmaking and the dribble handoffs and the crazy actions moving around them and the continuity they're bringing from season to season, which so many of these other teams in the West that I think are better than them have some question marks, whether it's you know, like the Grizzlies, as much as I raved about them, their best player is out at least 25 games. That's a huge question. We know the Clippers issues, even the Lakers, for as high as I am on them and their ceiling, there's still a lot riding on 38 and the soon to be 39 year old LeBron James and Anthony Davis. And, and the last few seasons, they've averaged like each of them has averaged, I think, 40 something games per year. Like, there's questions everywhere. Phoenix, I talked about the questions with them. Like, other than Denver, there's pretty much major questions to ask of all these other West contenders. And so I don't think it's crazy that just because of the continuity, what Fox and Simone is bring, how good they should still be offensively with the shooting around them, the system Mike Brown's put in place, that they'll still rack up enough regular season wins to be a really fun playoff team. So they, the, the Kings weren't one of my over or under achieving teams because I actually think they might just be similar to last year. And maybe they win a couple less games. Maybe instead of finishing third, it's like sixth. Or to your point, maybe they're in the play-in, but I still think they end up getting in the playoffs proper. I, I feel like a lot would have to go wrong for them to completely fall out of the playoff picture. Yeah, I don't know. I think that's that's where we disagree. Is I don't think like that much would have to go wrong. You know, like a, just a little bit of slippage on the health front, yeah. coupled with the conference around them getting better, coupled with their defense still being a problem because they made no steps to address that. And maybe the league catching up a bit to their offense. Like, I think that's sort of all it will take for them to find themselves down in play in territory and maybe on the outside looking in when we have our final eight in the West. But, you know, I'm fine to disagree on that. I just, I think it's also maybe just a bit of spillover frustration with how they went about using or not using their potential cap space this offseason, where it's easy for me to say this without knowing what was actually available to them, but. You know, I would have loved to have seen them take a run at Jeremy Grant, you know, for all the reasons and what he would have provided secondary rim protection, big wing defense. Like, I think someone like that or like swing a trade for OG and Obi, you know, like just think a little bit bigger than using the cap space to like pick up Harrison Barnes option, renegotiate and extend with Sabonis, bring over Vizenkov, who, yeah, might he might be a nice addition given his shooting, I guess. But like, I just... I would have liked to have seen them use that great opportunity that was available to them with the potential of having that space to actually address some clear weaknesses on the roster. So that's maybe that maybe I'm just expressing that frustration and that's blinding me to everything you said about their reliability relative to the other teams in the West. But I'm just feeling like for all those reasons, I don't know, I kind of I'm a little bit down on them compared to where I was at last year. 
I'm with you on, in that their offseason was a bit underwhelming. And I know that you don't necessarily mean it had to have been those two players, but in their defense, with respect to those two players, Jeremy Grant probably was not going anywhere but Portland, given the money Portland was offering them. And unless the Kings were going to trade Fox, Sabonis, and five first-rounders, they weren't getting OG Ananobi. So <laughs> fair, fair. Maybe now they can, now that Justice Winslow's a Raptor, though. Nice. Even then, like, why not sign Justice Winslow, man? Like, sign that dude to a minimum and see if he can, you know, shoot well enough to stick in your rotation. They just, they don't have, like, functional size on the wing. You know what I'm saying? Like, yeah. they've, got, they've got no chance to win a playoff series. I'll say that. <laughs> Which is a crazy thing to say, given how close they came to winning a playoff series against the defending yeah. champions last I year. I know. So, even you just saying that says to me, like, yeah, they're maybe primed to be an underachiever this year, fair. but... Fair. Uh, yeah. All right. So I was just gonna say th- things move quick in the NBA in terms of going from like the overachieving darling of the league, fun story that everyone loves, to being the underachieving stuck in the middle team. Like it happens quick. Yeah. And by the way, that but that's not permanent. Like that can change. No, agreed. Because their core is locked in 100%. for the next like three years. Fox and Sabonis aren't going anywhere. They're, they're you know not going to get any worse. If anything, they're going to get a little bit better. And they'll still have Herder there running that two-man game with Sabonis that we know is so effective. And Keegan Murray could be the kind of big swing piece, I think, that maybe takes them up another level. And then there will potentially still be moves for them to make to improve the team around that core. So it's not like I think they're stuck in this place where, oh, they had a nice, cute story season and now they're back to being the same old Kings. I don't think that way at all. I just think for this year, I feel like they're going to have a hard time reaching the heights they hit last year. What else you got? So my other over was Cleveland based mostly on the same regular season success uh, that we talked about. Not so much that I think they're going to beat one of Milwaukee or Boston in the playoffs. Um, so I'm actually out of my two of each. I mean, if you want me to come up with another one on the spot for variety. Oh, that's fine. I mean, part of it is like, yeah, we, we have overlaps and that's okay. Yeah. We had them last year. So yeah, I just had one more under and that, again, this is like, have a hard time really getting a feel for what the expectations for this team are. But generally my sense is that they're higher than my own. Cause I think the nets are going to suck. And I like, yeah, I understand like bridges had this great finish to last year and Claxton had a phenomenal defensive season. Everyone's excited about the prospect of a Ben. Well, I don't know how excited people are. Ben Simmons is excited about the prospect of a Ben Simmons. He (laughs) said he wants to get back to not just being an all-star, but better than an all-star. Yeah, let's let's ben take Simmons one step versus, at a time. Ben Simmons versus Carl Anthony Towns for least amount of self awareness in the NBA is one of my favorite rivalries. <laughs> and I'm not like, listen, Ben Simmons is not. Maybe, the, maybe they'll Carl get traded Towns for each other. What's that? Maybe they'll get traded for each other. That's that's the move. Yeah, but you know, not like obviously Carl Anthony Towns is a better player than Ben Simmons. But in, just in terms of like a lack of self awareness, those two guys are generational talents. Yeah. And I look, I think that Simmons should be better than he was last year, at least on defense, right? It does seem like he's healthier and has a bit more explosiveness. So even if the offensive limitations remain what they've been, like him taking a step forward defensively, again, you just sort of get into that issue of like, can you even play him and Claxton together though? Like that's going to lead to the Nets probably having a really strong defense, but then are they going to be able to score at all? And then for like as as great as Bridges played last season, as eye-opening as that stretch was, 
I still don't think like he's not a primary creator for a good team, in my opinion. So I, I just don't think there's a whole lot here, <laughs> you know, like outside of outside of Bridges and Claxton, which is like would be a great nucleus to build around if you could pair like a legit primary star with them. And I know you seem to think they have the type of trade package that could maybe get them that type of player, but do you those Suns and Mavs picks? Yeah. I like that and that's what I was saying even when I was talking about the Knicks. Like if you just go by surplus picks, yeah, the Knicks for example would blow Brooklyn out of the water. But if you're a rival GM building for the future, right? Cuz if you're trading a star, you're most likely going into rebuild mode. What would you rather have? These surplus Knicks picks in the next three years that are mostly going to end up in the teens, 20s, or speed second rounders, or Phoenix and Dallas picks unprotected or very lightly protected five plus years from now. I take option B. Yeah, that's fair. And then, I mean, maybe just Simmons is like the salary ballast that you're attaching those picks to, and it's sure. really just about the picks. Yeah. like Because I think I- it's like, apart from that, Bridges obviously isn't going and Claxton isn't going. Like those are the guys that you want to keep to surround this hypothetical star trade acquisition with, right? Yeah. So if it's I don't think there's really anything in terms of like player capital. I mean, maybe Cam Johnson. I was gonna say, I, I think Cam Johnson, as much as I like him and I think he can be part of the next good Nets team. Yeah. Out of the three that are their best three kind of young players, if you want to call them that going forward, he is to me the most expendable. And right. if you can turn those picks we talked about. Cam Johnson, salary filler. Like, you can get a, a star, I think. All right, so who, like, let's just quickly think about it. What what star makes sense for them? Like, what, what are we looking for in terms of who fits here the, the best? The one I would have loved, even Dame. though the age range doesn't matter, is Dame, obviously. Yeah. Uh, with him off the board, like, I don't know, like, even Cat. Does Cat really move the needle for the... Yeah, I mean, well, he Cat and Bridges would be really friggin' good together with Claxton as the as the five man, like, yeah, maybe they're like, you know, as much as I crapped on Towns' uh, big game resume, mm-hmm. talent wise, fit wise, you plug him in with Mikel Bridges and Nick Claxton and some depth around them. And that, that's a pretty damn good team. And yeah. I, if, if you loved the cat go bear front court, <laughs> let me introduce you to the cat and Claxton front court. Fair enough. And Bridges is like, you know, not Anthony Edwards. So that's probably not that great of a team, but the day well, I mean, like, you know what this means, right? Like, they would just suddenly become Wolves East, and yeah. I would have to be all in totally on board with everything the Nets are doing all of a sudden. Yeah, you're picking them to pick, uh, beat Boston and Milwaukee in the second round. Um, no, but I will say I'm with you on that. They are going to underachieve based on how high everyone's getting on them because my thing with being high on the Nets is not being high on them as, like, a team that could upset the order of the East this year. Like, they're not that good on paper. And something I've been saying too, as like a reminder to people, because early in the season or in the preseason when everyone has these sky high expectations, or you look at a young team as like, this team's up and coming, they have the pieces, like they're going to have this breakout year. Okay, but actually sit down and look at rosters and go through every team. Because it's very easy to say, this young team who I like the way they played in the second half of last season is going to have a breakout year and make the playoffs or whatever. It's very different to say that and actually sit down and go through all the teams and then give me the teams that they're actually better than. And even in the East, it's hard to come up with more than four, maybe five teams when you're talking about Brooklyn. And so if I'm talking about their ceiling being like 10th, 9th, maybe losing a play-in game, I'm sorry, that doesn't jive with some of the expectations people have for this team. Again, I'm still 
pretty high on them going forward because I do think that trade capital is there. And if they can add someone to Bridges and Claxton, maybe even Cam Johnson still being there, really exciting stuff. And I, I think they'll be like competitive even as a bad team this year. Like I think there's some solid pieces there, but in terms of like being a good team, a winning team, making the playoffs proper, no, I, they're not good enough. I have them finishing 12th in the East. So I think I have them. Oh, let's see here. Five others. So that I, that's why I felt like including them, just because I think even I, if your expectations for the Nets aren't particularly high, I don't think a lot of people have them finishing 12th. But I think, yeah. I don't know, I look at the team and I feel like they're going to be one of the worst offensive teams in the league. And then better than that defensively, but not enough to raise them into even play in territory in the Eastern Conference. So I actually have them. Well, I have them in a tier at 10th, 11th with another team. Uh, I, I'll just say it there with Orlando. I've got them mm-hmm. and the Magic as like the 10th and 11th seeds. Like one of them making the play in as the final team and one of them just missing out. All right. So there you have it. Uh, our projected over and underachievers for the 2023-24 season. Only took us uh, an hour and 20 minutes cash. Good for us. So uh, yeah, let's, let's hit a fan shout out and then get out of here. I've got one this week. Uh, another Spotify commenter. Jonathan Martin, who a couple weeks ago commented on one of our episodes. Hello there and greetings from Quebec City. Love your show. Listen to every episode since start of pandemic. Masai is a fraud. Raps will do good because Nick is gone. Uh, Parentheses, that ball pressure, shaking my head. Uh, OKC in the Western Conference Finals. So uh, a fellow Thunder believer. I mean, higher on the Thunder than even I am, seemingly. Look, I'm not going to go so far as to say that Messiah is a fraud by any means, but I'm on record as not being the biggest fan of a lot of the moves he's made over the last 24 months. And uh, Jonathan, I guess you feel how you feel. Thanks for reaching out. And we'll see how the Raptors do with Nick and his wacky, over-aggressive defensive schemes now in Philadelphia. I don't know what to tell you, man. I, I hope you're right. I hope you're wrong about Masai being a fraud. I mean, you are wrong about Masai being a fraud. But you know what? I want to. I commend you, Jonathan, because as much as I vehemently disagree with Masai being a fraud, despite moves I clearly take issue with over the last couple of years, he has the last couple of years have not been good. He's not a fraud. But I commend you for going there because I think that's even crazier than me saying Devin Booker might be a fraud if the Suns go out sad three years in a row. But you know what? Kudos to you for going there. Even though I think it's outrageous, sometimes I, I, I had Masai on. I had Masai on fraud watch till he signed Justice Winslow. Man, we back. <laughs> Kudos uh, to you, Jonathan. For I mean, I definitely disagree with you, but I think it takes a certain type of hot take artist to say <laughs> Masai Ujiri's a fraud. And uh, no doubt, no doubt. Uh, all right, we we should cap it there. Yeah. But thank you, Jonathan. And just a quick reminder to all of our listeners to hit us up on Twitter. I'm at Joey underscore W cash is at, at Joseph Cacharo. And then if you want to email us, joseph.cacharo at the score.com. I'm at joe.wolfon at the score.com. Or as Jonathan did, you can reach out on Spotify. If that's where you're listening to us, tell us where you're listening from, how long you've been listening, what you like about the show, what you don't like, and we will get you a shout out on a future episode. I forgot to mention, I think, Cash on Instagram, right? Joe underscore 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 Cash. Did I get that right? You got it. So hit us up uh, at one of those places if you're so inclined and want a shout out on a future episode. But until 
one of those future episodes. The next one of which will be coming to you on the eve of the start of the regular season with our annual bold predictions. We're going to leave you with this. For Joseph Cacharo, I'm Joe Wolfon, Pound the Rock. Thank you.